Good afternoon. Today is Tuesday, October 21st, and welcome to the inaugural podcast of The Late Podcast, The Law According to Eric. My name is Eric Bensamicon. I'm an attorney here in Los Angeles, California, in Woodland Hills in the San Fernando Valley. I've been in solo practice for the last five years, and after listening to a close friend of mine's podcast, I decided that maybe I would give it a try and focus on pertinent and new legal issues of the day, things that deal with the law and technology. Uh, I'm a bankruptcy practitioner by trade. However, I've handled several other types of matters, including civil and criminal, and we'll be talking about some recent Supreme Court case rulings and other various topics of interest as it relates to the law. A little bit about me. Uh, Again, I've been practicing solo for about the past five years. I'm in my early 40s. I still watch and enjoy pro wrestling. My favorite band is Bon Jovi, although I will say it's the Richie Sambora element of Bon Jovi that I enjoy most. Uh, Hands down, he's the greatest guitar player to ever live, and I would happily challenge anyone to a fight who chose to disagree with that. (laughs) And of course, I'm getting a phone call. So uh, bear with me here. Hello, this is Eric. Uh, hi, Sal at Destination XL. How are you? Uh, I'll try for today, but if not, I come in tomorrow. Okay, thanks, Sal. Mm, bye bye. Uh, I bought a suit on Saturday for a wedding. Uh, coming up that I'm going to be attending, and that was the place Destination Destination XL. For those of you that don't know, that's the Fat Guy store. Um, so the the tailors tailoring and alterations have been concluded, and they are ready for me to come in for my fitting. So um, we broadcast this live, uninterrupted, <laughs> and or well, kind of interrupted. <laughs> yeah, and there's your first glimpse. Uh, so today uh, we have a very special guest. Uh, for our first ever edition number one of the late podcast. Um, I want to welcome Dave Martinez. Dave and I have known each other for the better part of 15 years. Uh, Before I became an attorney, I was in the IT industry. And uh, one of the positions that I held was with a company in Santa Fe Springs that handled uh, or that did material handling solutions, which is a fancy way of saying they sold forklifts and equipment like that. Uh, but they had an IT group and they had, you know, a couple hundred users in a few different locations. And um, I was hired to manage their IT division. And one of the members of the IT staff was David. And so 15 or so years ago, we forged a relationship and have been good buddies ever since. We've since both moved on. Dave now owns his own IT consulting company called Contoured Solutions. Inc. based out of Pomona, although I can attest that he has clientele all over Los Angeles, Orange County, Riverside, San Bernardino. He's fairly sought after, and so I'm very lucky that I was able to get in at the ground floor of his consulting company. And so uh, being an original uh, OG client, I I get special (laughs) treatment now and then, which includes having him come in for um, our inaugural podcast. So uh, thank you, Dave, for joining us today. Thank you very much, Eric, for having me today. And so, Dave, maybe uh, for our listening audience, you know, for the four or five family members that are going to be obliged <laughs> to download this first podcast, tell us a little bit about your background and your education and, and what you do 
Um, and then we'll, we'll kind of get into the hot topic of how technology affects the law today and some of the recent and interesting cases in the media. Um, well, I would say uh, I began my IT career officially at uh, W.T. Ballard, which is the company that I eventually ended up meeting uh, you at, Eric, when I was about 17. Um, uh, and I've kind of been doing IT in some professional capacity or other ever since then, either working for uh, other organizations, including a nonprofit uh, based out here in the Valley, um, uh, and if, when, you know, if, if I wasn't working for, under somebody else doing IT, I've been sort of doing consulting under our company, Contoured Solutions, uh, since about 2003. Um, education, my educational background is um, I spent about three years studying computer science over at Biola University over in La Mirada, California, and then finished up my uh, undergraduate degree at uh, Azusa Pacific in information systems. Uh, yeah, and so that's, that's basically that background right there. Um, like Eric mentioned, um, you know, serve clients all over Southern California in various industries, from law to nonprofit to retail to media to finance, uh, and so on and so forth. And uh, yeah, Eric, um, in addition to just being a good friend of mine and a, and a good client, um, I, I, I look to him uh, uh, largely as a, as, a, as a mentor as well, as somebody who is a little further ahead in life and has. Uh, accomplished things that I hope to accomplish in my life as well, and so it's, it's for me. This has always been a, a very mutually beneficial uh, friendship, uh, both on a personal as well as a practical level. I, I appreciate you saying that, Dave. Now, and so now that the love fest is over, uh, we can get to <laughs> our our topic at hand, which is technology and how the use of technology is shaping the way that we practice law today. Um, I'm going to give two examples before I have Dave chime in. The first is that, uh, as I mentioned earlier, my, my primary area of practice is, is in bankruptcy. Bankruptcy is part of the federal court system. So United States Bankruptcy Court, for example, in the Central District of California, has several branch locations, if you will, Los Angeles, Woodland Hills, Santa Barbara, etc. But they're all considered federal courts. And almost every single document can be electronically filed. Every order can be uploaded. Uh, via the internet through the court's uh, PACER system or CACB, LOU, you know, uh, lodged order, um, upload system, ECF. Um, and it makes an extremely convenient way of practicing law. You know, you type up your pleadings and your motions, you convert them to PDF, and then you upload them, and that's it. They're electronically stamped, they're filed. Anybody who requests or is on your list will get electronic notice. Uh, of your filing. We get reports via an email, either as filings occur or once at the end of every night, which is when I get them, which gives me a list of all the different activity in every case that I'm associated with. So it's extremely convenient, uh, whereas state court litigation is extremely antiquated compared to U.S. Bankruptcy Court. For example, all pleadings and motions have to still be filed at the clerk's windows, we still have to send, you know, attorney, you know, an attorney service to go out there and stand online, or I'll send my uh, legal assistant Daniel uh, to go stand online for several hours. God knows he's had to do that numbers of times, um, just to get the filing stamp and you know the multiple copies and and so on. And it's it's much less uh, technologically advanced than the federal bankruptcy court system. So it's just one example of ease of practice and convenience. Uh, and another, but another example is in a case that I'm actually uh, co-counsel on right now, which is a trademark infringement case, and it's about the color of grilled chicken that is being served in two different competing restaurants. 
and one restaurant chain is accusing our client of essentially using their recipe in special seasoning blends or whatever to make their chicken come uh, appear reddish off the grill versus brown or yellow or golden brown or whatever. And so recently they sent us a notice of violation with PDF photos attached as evidence, which of course when they print, they print in black and white. And when we open the photos, they're in color. And it's like amazing. It was very obvious to us that the original pictures were tampered with because not only is the chicken like reddish or like a bright orange red, but then the picture of the beans and salsa next to the chicken were like glowing. They were so bright. And so just out of my own curiosity, I took a picture, say, of my desk, which is brown cherry wood, and I played with it on my iPhone. And of course, I made the desk look almost yellow or black or bright red just by adjusting the picture contrast. And then I was able to save the picture and use it and say, look, I have a black desk versus a brown red desk or or what have you. And so the ease of which uh, evidence can be tampered, electronic or digital evidence, and then what source do we trust or how do we show that this, this you know evidence has been tampered with. And so these are real everyday problems that attorneys face today in the you know in the era of electronic discovery. When we send a request for production of documents, uh, 85 to 90 percent of the time we get those documents back either burned onto a CD uh, or on some sort of electronic media. And a lot of the documents we're requesting are actually emails. Uh, and so we're getting these email documents as well. They're not actual paper documents like back in the good old days when boxes and boxes would arrive at the attorney's uh, doorstep uh, of their office and it would be you know all the documents that they've requested in a pending case and they would be you know bait stamped and organized hopefully in, in these giant boxes and it would be up to the attorney and his staff to go through those documents to see what was relevant to the request, what wasn't, what might be missing, what isn't. Today, discovery is supposed to be, because of technology and the use of electronic media, discovery is supposed to be much easier to procure and much easier to handle as far as disputes back and forth and requests for information. And so from a legal practitioner standpoint, uh, I can tell you there are pros and cons to the use of modern technology as it relates to discovery and discovery disputes. But what about for everyday practice? What about for client management, time management? What about for your your web presence? And you've heard like these terms, SEO marketing and organic Googling and all these wonderful things. And how does technology play into any of that? And is any of that really true? And so Dave, I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you to chime in and let's let's talk about that first. I get calls at least twice a month from companies who claim that they can make me top of the Google search. Uh, at any given time, <laughs> and I could be like the absolute most searched attorney in Los Angeles. So, mm-hmm. um, and I always tell them, "Well, why don't you talk to my IT guy first, and then get back to me?" And they usually hang up. So, what's that mean? <laughs> well, that usually means um, SEO, like any kind of any kind of industry that's relatively new and emerging. Usually, what you have happen is you'll have a whole bunch of people who have a general understanding of what it is and how it's supposed to work and just want to get into it quickly because it's hot, because everybody, it's a buzzword, everyone knows they sort of need it, they don't quite know what's involved in making it happen, and so you have all these sort of fly-by-night companies which come out of the woodwork saying, hey, we know that you want to be on search results because that's what everyone wants. You know, the time was, uh, if attorneys wanted to be found in a, in a local listing, they would a- advertise in classified ads or, or, the, uh, or the yellow pages or something like that. But, you know, these days... 
you know, who people who are, you know, now, you know, grow, you know, getting jobs and having families, the relatively younger generation of people that are doing so, they don't, they will never crack open a Yellow Pages book. They will never look for anybody in the classified ads. So what are they doing? They're doing Google searches, and attorneys were one of the first industries to kind of get wise to that fact and 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 try to invest heavily in local search results. So if if an SEO guy is at all worth his salt, his or her salt, they're going to tell you right off the bat, look, especially if you're in a highly populated, highly you know, competitive area like Los Angeles or like the Valley out here or whatever, yes, we can get you ranked higher, but it's going to take time. People, what people don't really realize or people, what people don't take into consideration when they look at SEO is like search engines like Google and Yahoo and Bing and all these people are not out to make you, the small business owner, money. They're not out to make it easier for you to advertise. What they're there for, primarily, is to help users find content that is relevant to what they're actually looking for. So as a result, they're very conservative with and and have really long and elaborate and complicated mechanisms for determining what sites and what local listings best correspond with what with certain words and some of the stuff that makes that happen and gives that extra relevance just takes time you know these aren't the kind of things that they will sort of do very quickly in fact part of why google was so popular initially is because traditional search engines were very easily manipulated by people doing things like stuffing a bunch of keywords in some place or throwing out a thousand and one listings on free job sites or someplace like that and those were and they were very sort of easily influenced that way so basically the search results always reflected who invested the most time in getting themselves noticed whereas nowadays it's 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 the the constant and focused and um I guess how would I put this? It's like it, it, it's getting ranked higher requires time and dedication and constant changes and updates and making sure that you're staying relevant with what people are searching for. Well, when you say time and dedication, don't you really mean money? Spending every month more and more? Because I've used, I'll, I'll be honest, I've used in the past things like Google AdWords, yeah, services like that, and all I know is that I hit my my daily budget like within minutes of every day, and mm-hmm. I got like no business from it. Mm-hmm. So when I say time and money, I mean, there's, there's two, basically two ways to get found on the internet. You've got paid advertising, which is like Google AdWords. Uh, pretty much every social media or any type of thing has, also has a paid advertising system. Yelp has a paid advertising system. Facebook has a paid advertising system. That's one way of doing it. The other way that time and effort and money can be put into place is literally just investing in p- other people's time to do things for you that you don't have the time or desire to do. So, like, for example, one of the things that Google likes to see when it comes to adding relevance to a website is a site that is constantly adding to its content. So if you pay, you know, you know, uh, Joe so-and-so to help ghostwrite some articles for you, or if you yourself invest the time and effort it takes to write fresh articles on new topics that come up or new case law that people should be aware of, you know, things that are particularly relevant to the kinds of things that your customers are searching for, that adds relevance to your site, for example. Uh, on top of that, you know, going through your site and doing the time it takes to research in Google and other search engines the kind of keywords that are most commonly being searched on a regular basis and making sure the content of your website prominently uses those type of keywords, not in a fake and like overly obvious sort of way because Google's smart enough to know when you're trying to just, you know, stuff keywords everywhere, but, you know, doing it in a, in a, in a real and relevant sort of way where I'm putting those keywords 
in my content so that Google will, again, further add relevance to my pages for those things that people are searching for. You make an interesting point. Can anybody really outsmart Google these days? You know what? Um, most, I would say most stupid SEO people will probably say, yeah, they're like, I've got, I figured it out, buddy. I've got the formula. But the truth of the matter is, um, not really, because at the end of the day, Google doesn't ever publish what they do. They'll let you know that we're, we are uh, publishing new algorithms for how we do searches, and you'll see the results. Because sometimes you know you will be ranked you know third or fourth like in search results, and then suddenly you'll fall, or maybe you might jump up a little bit based on you know small tweaks they've made. But in general, all of this stuff is just figured out with time, uh, and that's why. SEO people, only people who have had a reasonable amount of time and experience in actually doing this and an actual somewhat of a success record are people you should really at all trust because it takes time and, and it just constant monitoring of how like pages are being ranked and what changes do I make help and what changes do I make don't to really stay on top of it. It's not the kind of thing where you can just you know, do a, put a one-time fee together to make an SEO-friendly website and then just expect for it to continue to make you money. Like it's a, it's, it's a matter of constant monitoring, constant effort to, to, to get on top and to stay on top. All right, so I'm going to put you on the spot. Uh-oh. Uh, back in January, in anticipation of eventually getting into doing this <laughs> podcast, I purchased a domain, uh, mybklawyer.com. Okay. My plan was to make it uh, sort of an open-to-the-public Website, general information about bankruptcy and about the practice and about the bankruptcy code and the means test. And I was going to post some articles, both written by me and other articles that I found interesting. I would repost yeah. uh, the links to. And, of course, I'll give due credit to the author. and Naturally, yes. Of, yeah, of course. Uh, and I'm going to be housing my podcast there and so on. Now, are you telling me <laughs> that if I keep doing all that yeah. over and over on a weekly basis, I don't need an SEO company or Google or anything? Like, it'll just organically find its way up the charts somehow? I mean, adding content is definitely one of the big things that are going to be in your favor as far as doing that. At the very least, you may not necessarily need like a, like a full-blown, full-service SEO company to help you. At the very, you may need like um, somebody who is uh, to act on a, on a consulting basis, on a, on, you know, on a somewhat regular basis, to help guide those efforts. Like you, I mean... If you're do adding content and like you know regularly refreshing things and keeping it you know live and fresh, that's more than half the battle as far as what I you know from what I've seen. Um, at the very least, I would usually suggest you know consulting you know maybe a company to help make sure that the things that you're adding and the effort that you're that you're putting in is being directed in the best possible way. That the content I'm adding constantly is relevant to what people are actually because if you add a bunch of content that's for you know con- concerning subjects and things that people aren't looking for and people don't really care about and that's not only going to help you so much the point is to is, is is all that time and effort focused in the right direction i think that's where some of these seo consulting companies can uh can help certainly okay so let, then let's let's switch gears now for a little bit i think we've given google about a dozen plugs <laughs> and uh the, the various seo companies maybe they'll send us a hat right i, I suppose <laughs> if you google seo companies you'll probably find you know hundreds and hundreds of them and then what you should do is go to the 99th one and ask them why they're not first. <laughs> now, <laughs> thank you. Now, well done. Thank you. Um, now, uh, another, another you know, interesting area in technology as it relates to the practice of law is this idea of client management and you know, time management and when attorneys can, you know, um, how we market to different clients, what we're allowed to do 
what we're not allowed to do, whether it's direct mailing, whether we buy leads, you know, things like that. Um, and I know in other industries that, that there may also be certain regulations. And how do you how do you cope with the regulations or the restrictions around any particular industry when it comes to client management software or time management tracking or you know, things like that. Is there any particular platform you recommend? Is there uh, a program that maybe you've custom designed for somebody? Um, and, and what components did it have to it, you know, to make it work? Well, um, client management and even just firm management. And I mean, this, this falls into the category of, of, of things that attorneys will find increasingly more difficult as they start to grow in size and in staff. You know, if you've got a single attorney working out of his you know, home office or whatever, usually the needs are relatively straightforward. I mean, the, that attorney at that point may be able just to have a spreadsheet where they keep track of their hours and maybe a little you know, document or a notepad where they keep track of their time and different clients and whatnot. That's usually not that big a deal. Um, however, once you start to get more and more people involved, that's when things like that become more complicated. It, once uh, managing time and managing caseloads and managing documents and tasks have to get, you know, sort of, uh, uh, what's it called, uh, distributed across multiple people, that's when most attorneys and most attorney offices find it hard to really sort of get organized. Uh, and so technology has made it infinitely more easy uh, to sort of do so. I mean, getting servers in place now at your office where it becomes easy to collaboratively share documents and files between uh, different individuals is far more accessible than perhaps it was you know, 15, 20 years ago. Even cloud-based type systems, uh, you know, maybe like uh, Google Docs or something like that, uh, makes it relatively easy to be able to share documents and files between individuals. Now, of course, things like security and compliance you know, become big factors when you start sharing things over the cloud and whatnot. So there's a lot of caution and care that needs to be taken to make sure that you're not potentially compromising any kind of client data. All right. Now, I have to break in here for a second because I hear this term cloud all the time. David, what is the cloud? <laughs> yeah, believe me, I, I hear the cloud all the time. I've literally been asked the question, so... Are we on the cloud, David? And I can tell most people right now, if you have to ask, you probably aren't. Basically, back in the day in IT, when you said something was – you never used the word the cloud. The, 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 the whole reason why people even refer to like the internet as the cloud is because when IT people generally draw, draw diagrams of like their sites and their servers and whatnot, they always represent the internet as just this cloud because conceptually it's too large and complex to really sort of – you know, conceive in any other way other than this big nebulous cloud in the sky where supposedly all the information in the world sort of rests. But really when something is in the cloud, it just means that I'm not containing that information or procuring that service here myself. I'm pushing it up to some other entity. So for example, uh, here at your office, Eric, you have a server here which uh, re receives and sends and manages your email in-house. And that's how you guys do it. Uh, other entities, however, may choose to uh, pay a monthly fee to a company like, say, Google or Rackspace or whoever to host their email and to manage their email and their calendar and contacts off-site. That's what would be considered a cloud sort of email solution. It's basically, I don't have that data here. I don't produce that service here. I pay some other entity a monthly fee, and they sort of keep it up there. It's not always even a matter of a monthly fee, like Apple's iCloud service, where all of your photos get pushed to their servers and your contacts, everything gets synced up there. Obviously, there's no fees for that, but the whole, the, the whole principle is, I don't store it here. I don't produce it here. 
it is stored and produced on some offsite server that's hosted by some other entity. Is using cloud-based software more secure or safer than buying the actual software, owning it, and installing it on my own internal servers? That's really an excellent question, Eric. And it's one of these things where um, it almost needs to be looked at on a case-by-case basis because inherently, if you have something that's here in your office and, you know, let's just say in, in some circumstance, there's no remote access or no outside access which is you know sort of given to that infrastructure yeah there's a there's a huge argument that can be made that yeah it's it's practically very unlikely that somebody's able to going to sort of come in from the outside and break in and you know take my information so there's a sense in which it is sort of safer to kind of have it uh sort of on premise however as soon as you enter the world of providing some service externally like i want myself to be able to get to my office from outside like road into my own computer or check my you know my my internal email from the outside obviously you're then opening yourself up to a certain amount of 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 exposure that has to be accounted for in theory larger bigger companies with full-time IT staff and huge infrastructure and security experts and whatnot are going to be better equipped to keep that information safe if you host it with them than if you just try to do it out of your own office. Not to say that that's going to be always the case. Obviously, we hear about large entities getting, you know, taken down all the time, largely by the virtue of the fact that they're bigger targets, like like Target. <laughs> mm-hmm. well, that's, a, that's a good segue into uh, sort of the, uh, you know, the final topic I wanted to discuss with you today. And, and I have to start by asking that as an IT professional... How do you feel about uh, sites like WikiLeaks um, or you know this guy Edward Snowden mm-hmm. and the posting or pilfering, if you will, of classified documentation, but making it you know public? Because I know that you know there some people that I speak with believe that anything and everything on the internet should be transparent and open to the public. Mm-hmm. If, it, if it somehow makes it you know into the cloud, mm-hmm. right, or whatever the term is, mm-hmm. uh, then it's you know, it's free, free reign. Doesn't matter how it got there. There are, I know there are websites that they adopt a similar policy in that they don't really validate the source of the information they get. Mm-hmm. They simply post it, and that's their entire policy. Is we just post the stuff, we don't affirm it, we don't deny it, we don't take responsibility for it. We're not the authors. Mm-hmm. Um, and I can give you a, an interesting example. There is a website called Ripoff Report. Yeah. And Ripoff Report, apparently, if a consumer feels wronged somehow by someone or some professional, they can write a review. Mm -hmm. And Ripoff Report will not remove them, even if they become false or even if it's proven. Oh, really? Yeah. Their policy (laughs) is that, you know, we don't post, you know, we don't post these, we don't write them, Mm -hmm. right? We're, We're just sort of the host. Yeah. You know, you send us the info, we publish it, and... They finally recently allow the subject of the report to offer a rebuttal. Um, oh, that's good. But yeah, but how good is it really? If I'm mm. in the you know if I get a bid, I want to put uh, you know new wood floors in my house, and so I get a bid from some flooring contractor, and I Google him. Uh, there's that uh, famous Google again, and <laughs> he comes up on ripoff report. I'm much more likely to believe some wronged consumer versus. Mm. You know the mm-hmm. the flooring contractors rebuttal. Yeah. You know, um, and so, but that's just one example of sites that don't really take any responsibility for the content that's being published on those sites. 
And so I wanted to get your opinion as, as an IT professional. First, do you view the internet as sort of the last free frontier of information? Uh, and then how do you react to sites like WikiLeaks that, that I, I really think knowingly are publishing documents you know, they know to be classified, they know uh, are in countries' security interests, yet post them anyway, using this idea that the internet is free and you know mm-hmm. freedom of speech and Second Amendment or First Amendment and blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I really should know the difference at this point. <laughs> gone to law school, but hey, it was a while ago. So, Dave, please give us your thoughts on on that. Well, for me, there are uh, based on some of the examples you gave, there are a few sort of uh, there are a few sort of things to sort of talk about and to sort of address. Um, I always say, not always, but when asked, I uh, like to say that one of the greatest and one of the best and worst things about the internet is pretty much anybody can publish, you know, can, can has a voice, uh, and it really, really is. You gave the example of you know rip off reporter or. Or there are many other examples of uh, websites where a person can can you know post a comment and give their personal experience of their interaction with somebody, uh, and whether it's true or not, you know, rip off report or even like Yelp or these other places, they're under no obligation to make sure that the people who are commenting on their experience with you know, with business or with entities such and such is at all valid or legitimate. I have uh, I've actually been personally acquainted with uh, attorneys who. You know, some disgruntled, not even a client of theirs, but a client of their of the opposing counsel, um, was upset by the verdict or ruling, and then posted some completely fictitious account of how this attorney did this and did this and did this and did this, and it uh, had a really stark toll on their practice because, again, as more and more people are are getting their information from like from the internet and assuming like traditional forms of information and media that there is some validation in place. Uh, basically took it at face value that oh yeah this guy's a total you know a total thief and a total crook and it actually had a real adverse effect on their on their practice even after they were able to fight and get those that information removed I mean the damage is done you know as many people have commented on the internet once a photo is is, is, is up there once the information is out there there's no stopping it anymore there's no more like well I took it down so you know no harm no foul no the, the damage has been done it's out there uh, and so um, Unlike older forms of, of, of news and information that people used to get, like whether it was the television or newspapers, I'm not saying that everything you saw, like in the New York Times or on you know CBS, you know whatever news, was always 100% the truth and everyone had the highest journalistic and you know integrity. But there, at least there was some mechanism, some structure in place, some. Uh, some journalistic standards or standards of information that, that were being adhered to that at least we could somewhat count on uh, as far as you know the information's legitimacy and that, that some due diligence was done to make sure that this X, Y, and Z was true. But as you pointed out, there are so, so many places on the Internet where not only do they, uh, not only is there not, but they make, they make no allusions to the fact that we are under any obligation to validate whether the information we're publishing is true or not. I mean, the, you can do a Google search on 101 instances in which somebody made a slight change to a wiki article on some subject, like attributed a quote to somebody who never said it, or make some small cha- change to a fact about a country, and then later on in the, in the, in the months or years uh, that passed, People would cite that information like it was the gospel truth because that's what they like. Oh, because they people really don't. If you were to ask the average citizen whether the internet like is one hundred percent true, they would say, "Well, of course not." But we all kind of act like it is. Well, it's interesting because I've even seen uh, 
briefs and pleadings filed in court cases mm-hmm. where exhibits attached are like wiki pages mm-hmm. or you know a, a Zillow valuation you know where it's not like a real appraiser going through a house looking at every nook and cranny and giving you an idea of the value it's you know and they're trying and people are trying to pass that off as like you said is the gospel truth hey Zillow says that mm. this property is worth X therefore your honor it must be worth X and you know we're sitting there saying, well, Your Honor, how can that be? Now, I'll be honest, most courts don't put a lot of faith in Zillow or for Red good Fed. reason, yeah. yeah, yeah. But you know, I can tell you, attorneys try to use that all the time. I'm sure. You know, uh, hey, if I can find it online, you know, and you know, the the web version of Webster's Dictionary and just print off a page. Great, it saves me a ton of time and effort. I don't have to go to the library and crack open books. No, uh, I, yeah. I, I haven't. You know, I used to have a bunch of law books. You know, when, when I first <laughs> opened the office, I thought, wow, if nothing else, it's aesthetically pleasing to the eye to see <laughs> this like you know big giant bookshelf. Yeah, I got to yeah. be honest, I don't think I've used a single book out of that bookshelf ever. <laughs> I, I hear that unanimously these days yeah. from most attorneys. Everything yeah. is on Westlaw or Lexis or the Law.net and. But to that point, obviously, you know, I don't know, uh, to those who maybe aren't necessarily as legally inclined, the sources you're mentioning, like Westlaw and Lexis, those are closed sources with information that is good and that is bound. So there are certainly, not every website has that same degree of like, well, it can never be trusted. Obviously, you know, there are certain sources like you were citing, which are good and valid sources for that type of legal information. But for the average person who looks on the average, you know, news site, even a lot of these websites where people posting some article about how, like, Scientists have discovered that three-legged tuna fish coming out of you know Japan since the, the you know and the people post it like like oh that's that's real without really bothering to determine did this actually well, happen? So tell me then for guys like me that are in small solo practice or that have a few employees, what are some simple things we can do uh, to make our environment a bit more secure? I mean, technologically speaking, mm-hmm. you know, more secure. Uh, you know, I know a big concern. In every law symposium I've attended or seminar, uh, attorneys are being told about protecting their files, mm. their, their confidential client files and information. Mm-hmm. And what are some steps that small solo practices can do that don't necessarily cost you know a fortune uh, as far as you know your ultra secure firewall type thing? But mm. you know what can we do just to make sure that our files are, are more safely protected or to become less less of a target, so to speak? Well, there's a few basic things uh, that can be... There's a few basic things that I think every small business can, can do with relative ease, either internally or relatively inexpensively with your average IT sort of guy or consultant or whatever. Um, and that's to try to identify two things. One, potential points of weakness. So things like, do I have a wireless... You know, a relatively insecure Wi-Fi, which is being broadcast in a very public sort of area. Granted, Wi-Fi is a very nice and convenient sort of thing to have, but unless it's a, you find it to be a real strong necessity, like most retailers have found out the hard way, it's usually not a great idea just to kind of have it out there because Wi-Fi um, is one of those types of securities that. Given uh, given a close enough proximity, obviously, and enough time, can be broken down and can provide somebody with direct access into your local network. Uh, on top of that, well, even- now, let me stop there because that's a frightening thought. Mm-hmm. Let me tell you, I I go to Kaiser for medical care. You know, I'm a member of Kaiser. Yeah, Kaiser has free Wi-Fi in every hospital. Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, you go. I go to the pharmacy or I go for a doctor's appointment. I connect to their Kaiser guest Wi-Fi. 
And I've got to imagine that this is the same network that has my medical record number and my social security number or people's Medicare numbers and, mm-hmm. you know, all these confidential files. So you're telling me that that your standard Wi-Fi security is one of the easiest securities to hack? Well, here, okay, here's the thing. If we were talking about, like, you know, you know, Joe, you know, Joe Coffee Shop down the street, you know, that's something that they just bought, like, a little wire access point <coughs> from Office Depot and put it up there. Yeah, I'd be – I would certainly say – be aware and be concerned. However, an entity like Kaiser that's providing some kind of, and it didn't have to be that quite that large. Entities like Kaiser and, and, and other places that provide this sort of free Wi-Fi access, they have other more enterprise-grade levels of security that they put in place to A, ensure that you know, you're not, you know, visible to the, you know, three or four hundred other individuals who are sharing the Wi-Fi, you know, today, but also that um, that uh, the free Wi-Fi they're providing is not in any way, shape, or form uh, has had, doesn't have, in any way, shape, or form have any potential to compromise everything else that's attached to the network. Like they're, they didn't just plug in an access point into their secured network and just let everyone who wanted to have at it. They they have completely segregated uh, networks for people for guests to access that don't you know then compromise the rest of their stuff. Whereas here in your you know and say your office, you may not necessarily sort of have that, which is why we don't have a wireless network here in this particular office. Okay, well that's that's an interesting point. That's good to know. And so there you have it, right from the horse's mouth, the <laughs> law offices of Eric Bensamakan, the Bensamakan Law Firm, the late podcast, has no wireless access in our, <laughs> in our studio office, uh, in our regular office here. We care that much about, about the security and confidentiality of, of our clients' information. Yes, it had nothing to do with me not wanting to spend the $94 <laughs> for the wireless router. It was recommended to me uh, to simply not have one. So. Win-win. It was win-win. There we, there we go. Uh, so uh, I want to uh, – we're, we're coming up now on, uh, on the end of our first um, broadcast. And so I want to first thank Dave Martinez of Contoured Solutions for being our very first guest. Uh, thank you for having me, Eric. Dave, if um, more than three or four people actually download and listen to our podcast, mm-hmm. how can they get a hold of you if they have questions or they have IT consulting needs or – you know, they, they need to uh, get in the cloud or whatever. <laughs> they need to be a bit more cloudy? Yes. Is that what I'm hearing? Okay. Yes. Uh, well, you can, uh, the first and best place is to go to our website, which is www.contouredsolutions. That is C-O-N, like Nancy, T-O-U-R-E-D, Contoured Solutions, and solutions is plural, ContouredSolutions.com. You can go to the contact section of our page and uh, fill out a form to get to receive more information. Or you can call our office directly at uh, area code 562-735-0669. Again, that's 562-735-0669. We're always happy to uh, do free initial consultations to uh, examine people's needs and just discuss the scope of what uh, of either a particular project or ongoing service needs. And, uh, you know, we just, we'd like to help and we like to meet new people. So yeah, I get free initial consultations too except i'm not always happy about it but, uh, you know. so uh in the in the weeks to come uh i want to let our listening audience know what they can expect uh the dot webpage will um we're going to be adding more and more to that as the weeks go by uh some original um, blogs and articles links to helpful information for consumers who may have questions about um, debt relief or uh, you know dealing with second mortgage lenders I know that now 
uh, those second mortgage lenders are becoming more aggressive mm. because property values have started to go up again, and so they're feeling a bit more secure than from before when houses were so far upside down. Um, we'll have some information on recent case filings uh, that may be of interest, you know, like when the city of uh, Detroit, you know, files bankruptcy and <laughs> things like that. Don't forget, Orange County was in bankruptcy not too long ago, you know, also. I did not know that. Wow. Yeah, it's, you know, it's all out there. You know, was it Bell Gardens or the city of Bell? Oh, oh good Lord. Yeah, there's lots of uh, Vernon? Yeah, Ver- yeah, yeah. Well, lots that was more corruption. That wasn't bankruptcy, but. Well, you know, corruption leads to bankruptcy generally. They're all interrelated. <laughs> it's all path to the same, to the same destination. And so that, and so the mybklawyer.com, you'll be able to. Uh, download our, our podcasts. Uh, we're going to try to do them uh, on uh, every two weeks or t- twice a month. We want to release new ones. Uh, as my daughter would say, uh, podcasts are going to drop every two weeks. And thank you. <laughs> Did she really say that? No, but I, had to, <laughs> I didn't want to pretend like I'm using term drop. <laughs> now that you called me out on it. You know. um, uh, you'll also be able to email me directly any questions. And in future episodes, I will read listener questions live and give the you know do my best to give you a, a halfway decent answer. Of course, disclaimer: now I'm not giving legal advice, nor am I uh, ask, being asked to solicit legal advice. Uh, simply re- responding to an email. Um, having said that, you can email me questions or thoughts, and I'd be happy to address them um, in our upcoming episodes. And so, so I, th- I think that's going to be about it. We're about to wrap up. But Dave, before we go, um, one thing I like to do is at the end of every podcast when I have a guest is just do some word association. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. And, uh, you know, uh, we'll spend a minute or so. And uh, so, um, you know, how it works, right? I'm going to just throw out a random word. Yeah. And then I want you to just say the first thing that comes to mind. Oh, no. Okay. Okay. So uh, deep fried Oreos. Delicious. Bon Jovi. Fun. What do you mean fun? I, I just, <laughs> you, you know what? This is my association. So that's right? not the point. How do you not say greatest band ever, you know, to ever live? Let's try this again. <laughs> Deep fried Oreos. Delicious. Bon Jovi. Greatest band that ever lived. Okay, thank you. Uh, Brett the Hitman Hart. <laughs> that's actually my answer. <laughs> that, that's my first association. Is the best there is, best there was, best there ever will be. Um, um, this is my proof to the listening world that I actually do still watch pro wrestling. I have been for... <laughs> and as a child of the 80s, clearly. Yes. Well, musically, I'll admit that I never came out of the 80s. But to be honest, I haven't heard many good you know, bands since the 80s. Um, you know, I might dedicate a podcast just like great 80s music. Um, you <laughs> the, know, 80s, some, the 80s, according to Eric. <laughs> yeah, some of the greatest bands. I mean, I can only tell you there are only two bands that I think really started post-1988 or 89 that I liked, and that would be the Black Crows and Nirvana. Um, otherwise, I, I you know no, nothing in my mind compared to not even the Rolling Stones, not even the bands from the seventies. And again, Joey this, just took the cake. And again, this isn't legal advice, right? No, it's just not. You know, it's my podcast. I'll, <laughs> You'll do what you, you want. Know, I mean, I've seen Bon Jovi in concert, I think six times yeah. at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, the last time uh, Dave and I went together, uh, we we saw Richie Sambora solo, and then we saw Bon Jovi in concert. And this Bon Jovi concert. Richie Sambora was not present. I guess he had left the band a few weeks earlier, had some sort of riff. And I will say that the show sucked compared to the other Bon Jovi shows that, that I've seen and that Dave has seen, I'm sure. So 
we will we'll end today with uh, that note again. Thanks to Dave Martinez of Contoured Solutions for joining in, in 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 what I think is a very pertinent and important topic and discussion today in uh, in today's modern law practice. Uh, so again, Dave, thanks very much. My pleasure. I look forward to our our next podcast. <laughs>